I would like us, before we start, let's read together Acts 2, 42 through 47. That's Acts 2, 42 through 47, and then we'll pray. And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, uh, we ask that you would pour your Holy Spirit out upon us today. Pray, open our hearts, open our minds, clear all anxiety and worries and uh, anything that troubles us that we would be able to receive the word that you have prepared for us today. Um, Speak through me, Lord, and help me be a vessel for your glory. Be with us and help us to learn what it means to be a family of faith tonight, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. So, as you know, we've been going through our series uh, on the pillars of risen hope, and the one that I ended up with is family of faith. Um, And the passage that we just read in the book of Acts kind of describes an idyllic view of what a family should look like. But I think the wonderful thing about God creating his church and his family is that it resembles the family unit, the nuclear family. I know everyone here is part of some sort of family. Um, And those relationships between husband and wife, parents and children, mother and children, father and children, all are meant to model what a family of faith looks like. And so as, you, as we read through the different passages today, you will get a sense of the parable um, of what it means to be a family of faith and how our own families can model that and be an exa- example to us of what a family of faith is. But we, before we get into those practical things, I really want us to have a clear understanding of why a family of faith, why the church exists in the first place. And... Uh, how that relationships work works with God our Father. And uh, we will get to the book of Acts in a bit later, but the book of Acts describes the result of this relationship that Jesus had established between us and the Father. And like everything else in life and in the Bible, it begins with God. And so I think one of the key verses as being part of a family of faith, we need to know 1 John 3 verses 1 and 2. And it should be familiar uh, to us, and I mean, this is kind of one of the key uh, Sunday school verses we learned as kids. And it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. 
Apostle John, in, this, in this, uh, these, this passage, lays it out simply and plainly. He simply says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Right? And naturally, by having God as Father, we kind of, the outcome of that is we become siblings, right? If we count God as Father, we all have one Father, that means we are all children, meaning we're all part of the same family. And, uh, the way Jesus did that is really described in Jesus' high priestly prayer, the one he prayed about his church before his death. And it's recorded in John chapter 17. And uh, as we read it together, and this is going to be quite a bit of reading today, um, we want us to pay attention to how Jesus talks about us before the Father. So that's John chapter 17. Um, let's read it. When Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of this world. Yours they were. You gave them to me, and they have kept my word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I come from you. And they believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am praying for the, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Right? Last name. Last names are part of this God's we carry God's name, which you have given me that they may be one and even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me in the world, so I have sent them into the world. For the, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfect ones so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me, Father. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even the world does not know you. I know you and these that you have sent, that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, this is a long passage, but really what it does is build a foundation of oneness among us and between Jesus and God. When Jesus says, we, I want them to be one as you and I are one, meaning there's that father-son relationship. And so Jesus is basically proclaiming over his children that they're coming into the same relationship between God as Father, as Jesus is between God as Father. Now, Jesus did this by sanctifying us and justifying us through his death. His death was the means that he had restored that relationship that we lost in the Garden of Eden. And so he rebuilds that father-son relationship. I mean, basically, the parable of the prodigal son of the father accepting his son back into the family is what Jesus did uh, on the cross. And uh, just like the most important and vital commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our being, it's the same in our family of faith. Our most important collective relationship is with our Father in heaven. The Gospels establish our relationship with God our Father, and in the Gospel of John, Alone, Jesus refers to God as Father almost a hundred times. Um, we wouldn't have a family of faith if God is not related to or treated as our Father. We've got to know that, you know, this isn't just a community gathering. The reason we exist as a church, the reason the global church exists is because we are created to worship God and to honor Him as our Father and to worship him and cherish him as a loving father. And just like we read in John, 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now, in this world, um, you know, fathers and mothers, parents, are not, uh, you know, often are not, perfect examples or reliable examples of what the father love of the father looks like if we're making those parallels but that's one reason that the family of faith exists is because when we come into a relationship with God he replaces all of our missed longings and uh, he allows us to belong and shows him as the one true and loving father and just by the simple virtue of us being children of God we become a family of faith. It's not built around you know, genetic ancestry or birth, but it's a family built on the saving faith given to us by Jesus Christ. And the familial bonds that are given to us by God is because Jesus requested that uh, before his death. And one of the more, one, another important thing is that our faith walk was never meant to be a solo endeavor. We are not meant to do this alone. That's why Jesus created this family of faith, the church. Um, we were created to live life as a family, 
You know, that's why God created Adam and Eve, a family unit. That's why he gave them children. And with Jesus being our new Adam and his church, the bride, you know, God is repeating the building up of the family. And this is called the church. And the crazy thing is, is that Jesus even says that while he was still alive and his family was still alive, what he basically says is, it's not really my mother and my brother who is my true family, but these other folks, as we read in Matthew 12, 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the men who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, we shouldn't have a doubt in our mind that Jesus didn't love his you know, mother and his brothers. But in this moment, while he was fellowshipping and worshiping God together with this other group of people, they became to him closer than family because in that moment he wanted to remain with this group of people instead of going outside and talking with his earthly family. Now, this does not mean that we forsake our earthly relationships with our loved ones and our families, but we have to know, and the key takeaway is that our holy relationship, our family of faith can and should be more important. Um, because we are bound together by, with those who do the will of our Father. You know, Jesus says it plainly, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. But the, what that also means is that anyone in any corner of the world can be a brother, a sister, or a mother to us. Um, and it sh they should be. We should see those relationships as our true family. The problem is trying to, you know, trying to find and buy Christmas presents for all of our family across the world, but we'll get to that in a bit. All right, now that we have established that how Gospels, how the, the you know, the four Gospels reveal to us in our familiar, familial bonds and our relationship with God as our Father, um, when we look into the book of Acts, uh, it shows us many illustrations about, you know, practical means of living together with one another uh, as a family. You know, it's all well and good that uh, we can worship the Father together and worship Jesus together, but, you know, Jesus also said, if you claim to love God but hate your brother, then the love of the Father is not in you, meaning you're, you're, you're not part of the family. And so having those relationships, loving one another is extremely important, right? It's coming back to the two main commandments. Jesus said, love the Lord your God, main commandment, we worship God as Father, and love your neighbor as yourself, meaning it kind of becomes horizontal. We love everyone around us as ourself because we love the Father. You can't, those cannot exist apart from one another. The passage we read at the beginning, Acts 2, uh, 42 through 47, are a couple examples of what it means to love one another in a practical sense. And uh, 
but the, the author of Acts, Luke, wrote it down again in chapter 4 because he thought it was a, such an important thing. So if we open up chapter 4 of Acts, uh, starting in verse 32, and let's read. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Right? We see that one soul worshiping God and then materially sharing everything but that they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now for the note-takers here, uh, Luke lists two important characteristics of the family of faith. The first is unity in faith, and the second is sharing material things to help those in need. Uh, being part of the family of faith means we must be on the same page regarding the gospel and Jesus Christ's lordship and having God as Father. Um, the family of faith exists to glorify God the Father. Jesus established our family for that reason so that when we become part of the family, we would continue glorifying the Father while we're still here on earth, as we read in his priestly prayer in uh, chapter 17 of John. Um, but the second characteristic is that we must be generous with those who lack material resources. This is a practical thing. The reason you know, there wasn't a needy person around them or among them is because they were proactive in taking care of needs. They didn't wait for a person to come up and say, I need something. They were actively looking to make sure that their brothers and sisters around them had all their needs met. Um, you know, their response to seeing other believers in need was, how can we make sure their needs are met? Both, you know, food, shelter, clothing. But... You know, it's amazing to me that throughout Acts, we see this parallel played out again and again with the, with the great, two greatest commandments that Jesus taught. You know, they worship God in unity and that they love one another by taking care of one another's needs. Another beautiful example of this, uh, of these principles, is found in Acts 9, 36 through 39. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated meaning Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Now, we don't know a lot about this disciple Tabitha or, you know, how well off she was or otherwise. But what we do know about her is that she was full of good works and acts of charity and that she served the needy, the widows, by making clothes and other garments for, her, for them. Uh, Tabitha wasn't looking for recognition. She was just fulfilling needs. She was using what God, the gifts, gift God gave her. You know, she, when uh, you had to make clothes in the past, it was starting from, you know, you had to create your own threads, basically. Uh, 
And so that required a lot of skill. But she used the skills and talents that God gave her to serve uh, the needy. Another example of serving the needy can be found in Acts 11, 27 through 30, which reads, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the, day of, the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, what this passage describes is that our family of faith, and in turn those whose needs we should be looking after, right? So it's not just the global family of faith, but we should be looking at needs globally. You know, we're not always local. And so the church knew there there existed in other places of 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 their world, as far as they knew, their family that were in need. They, there were people who were going to be hungry because of the famine that was foretold by, this, by, this, uh, by Agabus. And they did not hesitate in gathering resources, right? The key word is those who were able. So they weren't, they weren't coercing anybody into giving more and more than what they should, but according to each one's ability, they gave and made sure that the family in another part of the world was taken care of and did not go hungry, right? Um, when we talk about giving, we have the health and wealth gospel and lots of churches and lots of false teachers, they coerce their congregations to give more and more to fill their own pockets. But Jesus puts a limit on that. He says, give according to your needs, uh, to your ability, but it doesn't excuse us for not giving or not seeing our family's needs. Um, but the question becomes, how do we find out about all these uh, family that we have, family members all over the world who are in need? And uh, right, the, the disciples did it. It's written down in Acts 14, 24 through 28. Um, Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended by the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God has done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. And so... The disciples were able to somehow found, find out about other brothers and sisters uh, in other parts of the world, right? They didn't have email. There was no telegraphs or phone communications. Um, so for us, there's really no excuse to be ignorant about the needs of our brothers and sisters across the world. It is a commandment given by God. Um, if we love our brothers and sisters, if we love our family, we are going to be proactively looking to make sure that they're taken care of. And so if the disciples in the past can find out about how their brothers and sisters are doing all over the world, we should be looking and seeking to do the same. Now, uh, moving on, the book of Acts is also in part about the growth of the church. 
And uh, that means we need to come to grips with the fact that our family of faith is much bigger than just Risen Hope. I know we love one another dearly, but it's bigger than Risen Hope. It's bigger than Queensgate Baptist. And every place that the apostles went, they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and people from all over those places believed and were saved and added to the church, as it says multiple times, daily. And they became part of the family of faith, as we have read, that if they start to do the will of the Father, they become, part, they become his children, meaning they become our brother or sister. And that means that we are to love our family no matter the part of the world they're from. And, you know, one a good example of that is in Acts 10, 24 through 29. It's the story of Cornelius. And it talks about Peter, and, you know, Peter right, right after he sees the, the stuff coming down from heaven that he wasn't supposed to eat before, and God tells him to eat. And this is the result of that. Let's read uh, verse 24. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why have you sent me? Um, we do not get to pick our family members, right? When, uh, when your child is born, you accept them in your family and you love them as he is. And because God is the one who determines who become our family members. And if we are to love God, we will not have any objection to being with his children, no matter who they are or what part of the world they're from. As the story of Risen Hope nears its final chapters, and when we go our different ways, and we must be ready to be called to be with people who are not our ideal choice to be with. Right? But our calling is to love all children of God. Um, you know, the crazy part is that we may be called to accept into our family those who were once our enemies. Maybe someone who has really hated us or done us harm. Uh, there may come a time when we call them our brother or sister. Uh, the book of Acts has numerous examples of that. We know the story of Paul. We know his beginning and how he persecuted the church. But then when we get to Acts chapter 9, uh, verse 26 and 28, let's read. And when he had come to Jerusalem, the meaning Paul, he attempted to join the disciples, and rightly, they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord." Now, what this means is that when Paul joined the church in Jerusalem, there were people in that same congregation that Paul had probably personally hurt. Right? He probably put some of those people in prison. He probably killed 
their family members or had them stoned. But what, what this passage tells us is that if when we're part of a family of faith, we have to accept those people back into our family, even though right, they once hated us. They may have done extremely hurtful things to us. Another great story is uh, the one about the jailer. And that one is found in Acts 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we, all are, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, can you imagine... Just moments ago, this guy threw Paul and Barnabas into prison. He put shackles on their feet, hands probably, and he was, his job was to make the prisoners' lives miserable. Uh, but one earthquake later, and they're being baptized, right? Paul and Barnabas are baptizing their, their jailer and all his family. And uh, this is another excellent and awesome example that God is the one who chooses who becomes part of our family, family of faith. And our job is simply turn around and to love them. Um, you know, I think that's one reason God says to love our enemies is because, who knows, the next day, next hour, we may experience an earthquake together and they'll believe and they'll be part of our family. And Paul and Silas didn't make a big deal about what the jailer had dumped done to them, right? They weren't like, right, before we accept you into our family, we want to air some grievances. Here's X, Y, and Z. Here's how you messed up, and uh, we need you to repent for that. Um, they were rejoicing that they were able to adopt another family member into, their kingdom, into the kingdom of God. And to them, that was more joyful and God-glorifying than the jailer getting the justice that he deserved. Another one really important characteristic of family of faith is to serve one another. I mean, just like Paul was and Barnabas were just out of jail and uh, still had wounds on them while they were uh, baptizing the jailer, I mean, even more so, we should be ready and willing to serve uh, one another as family members. Um, and that's a common theme throughout church history. There were always pastors and always deacons, but... We shouldn't exempt ourselves uh, from service. Acts 6, let's read Acts 6, uh, verse 3 through 6. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, 
whom we will appoint to this duty, meaning uh, serving the, the church body in practical means. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the world, of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, it is common, I think, in our families, as children grow up, um, as they mature, they, they take on more responsibilities to support the household, the family, for the betterment of everyone. And I think in the, in the family of faith, the church it works the same way, meaning as people grow and mature in the faith, um, there comes a point when they have to take on responsibilities in the church to serve one another. Uh, I mean, it's part of what it means to be a healthy family, right? If there are, if your child misbehaves, there, you know, there's discipline issues and there's correction that happens. Um, but it's basically an expectation that, uh, that uh, everyone takes up uh, responsibilities. Everyone basically pulls their way, as they say. And I think moms know this, know this most of all as... Uh, you know, it gets pretty tiring to do all the chores and all the dishes and all the laundry all the time. And how wonderful it is, I think, when you feel, when, you, when your kids start doing their own chores and doing their own dishes and their own laundry. And it's the same in the family of faith. There's always a lot of people that need to be served, especially new believers that come in. And so people who mature, uh, you know, Children grow up, and we have to take on responsibilities. Um, but what can be more challenging, right, is uh, when we have to send people out. It's always painful uh, to take our loved ones and see, the, and see them go. Um, but that has also been a common theme in church history and in our family of faith globally. You know, some of us are, served to, uh, are called to serve locally, but others are called to serve in other places. And there's also a ton of examples in the book of Acts of that happening. One example is in Acts 13, uh, verse 1 through 3. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a life, life, lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Meaning these people were together in a family. They were worshiping the Lord together, sharing food, ministering together to the, to the people around them. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit says, These two men have to go into a different place. Um, it's no different than before. You know, that theme of God moving his people all over the world for the work of his ministry is uh, how he spreads the gospel. Right? It's counter to preaching the gospel and spreading the good news of Jesus if we all expect to remain in the same place all the time. Um, the church grows and evolves. It's, it's a... It's a, living, it's a living 
organism, if we could put it in those terms. And throughout history uh, of the church, if, you, if anyone is interested in doing some studying on their own, um, the church is always spread out, um, split apart, whether voluntarily, like uh, in this example, or through the means of persecution or raids uh, by uh, violent enemies. You know, it's one reason Christianity reached the Mongols was through persecution and Mongol raids in Europe. It was, it was the reason that uh, Christianity reached Norway and Finland was because the Vikings were attacking uh, Irish monasteries. And so God is going to do his work regardless of whether we want to or not. Um, it's whether we're going to comply and do it voluntarily first or whether God is going to have to send some means of splitting up a church and sending out believers into other places of the world. And uh, the reason he does that and the reason it's reasonable for him to do it is because God sees his family as a global bride, a global church. And like we read, we have brothers and sisters all over the world, and so we're not limited to a single place to be part of a family of faith. Um, the hard part is, is that... Uh, some of us may not see each other again, right? And this is a sorrowful thing that the church has experienced throughout ages. Um, and it started with the first church, right? Paul uh, was one of those people. In Acts 20, he writes uh, this sorrowful moment in verse 36. He says, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to, to the ship. Now, it's difficult to imagine that there may come a moment in our lifetimes when we meet together for the last time. Um, but this is a, a reality for believers throughout history. And it was very much true for the believers in the book of Acts when they uh, encountered persecution of all kinds in every part of, the, of, their, uh, of their ministry or across that region. We know that Stephen, who was one of the first martyrs for Christ, uh, Paul threw Christians in prison and was later thrown in prison himself. Uh, the family of faith was never far from being persecuted, and that still holds true today. Our family members, our brothers and sisters and mothers, are all over the world are suffering for their faith in Christ. And being part of the family of faith means that least we can do is remember them. And sometimes one of the most, the most we can do is pray for them. And it is not unlikely, it's very probable that some of us may end up suffering for our faith in one way or another. But if we truly love one another and remember one another's suffering, we will not be suffering alone. Because we will know that our brothers and sisters are actively praying for us and remembering us bringing us to God. Prayer for those suffering from persecution should be an inherent part of our lives as Christians in a family of faith. Just like parents remember their kids who go off to college or move to a different place, we have to remember one another and pray for one another. Uh, there's plenty of examples in the book of Acts as well. Uh, Acts 12 the story of when Peter was put in jail. 
starting in verse 2. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And if you guys remember one thing from, the, uh, from this message, my prayer is that we all remember to pray for one another, that we would all remember one another. Uh, modern culture, uh, even some Christians really make light of prayer for one another. But I think no matter how unpopular it is or socially inappropriate, we are called to remember one another and to pray for one another. Um, and that means when we gather together to remember those who are not with us, to remember those who are in prison or those who are suffering uh, for their faith. I think it's a sad practice that we have lost that when we gather together for meals or for any type of reason. There are plenty of topics that come up, but we forget those who are our family and are suffering for the Lord. Now, there are plenty more examples I could talk about in the book of Acts. Um, but uh, I'd like to encourage you to read through the book of Acts and just note down all the different passages that talk about how Christians should relate to one another. Uh, there are practical examples of church discipline, of correcting one another in love and gentleness. There are examples of how to deal with disagreements between one another and what authority over one another looks like. I mean, there's even an example of a Christian paying for another Christian's bail money in Acts 17.9. There's people using legal resources to, to protect each other from, uh, from, from unfair laws and from injustices. That can also all be found in the book of Acts. But what all these examples are a testament to how wonderfully our Father in Heaven has set up our family of faith and established it, not just Risen Hope, but the whole church around the world. It is amazing to think that we can go into any part of the world and feel like we have family there or feel like we belong to a family of faith there, even though we may not even speak the same language. Um, I've experienced that in India and in China and different parts of the world, just being there, knowing that these people love me as they love their own children. The family of faith has been going strong for over 2,000 years since Jesus prayed that prayer before the Father, giving us into his loving care. And it uh, keeps going no matter how much the enemy has tried to destroy it through persecution through uh, suffering, through famines and uh, floods, any kind of cataclysms. But the church just uh, spreads out, plants again, and grows stronger. And uh, Risen Hope's story as a local church may end, but our collective story as a family with faith will continue until Christ gathers us in his kingdom at the end of the age. Now, in a few moments, we'll be remembering and celebrating Christ's death and resurrection through the taking of the elements, through communion.
And this was also intended to be done together with other believers, as Paul describes in uh, Corinthians. And so as we prepare our hearts to take the bread and drink the wine, and as we close in prayer, I would like each of us to take a moment, take a second, and remember somebody who might be lonely tonight, some of our family members who might be sick, who are probably suffering, who are in jail. And as I close in prayer, just pray for them and uh, make that a practice in your lives. And I, just so uh, that uh, we remain a family of faith. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just hope and pray that those words take up a new meaning in our lives so that we truly would honor you and worship you as our Father in heaven. And I pray that we would have those same feelings of love and devotion to one another as being brothers and sisters in Christ. Being part of your family, Lord, help us to understand what that truly means so that we, as a risen hope closes its doors, but that we would remain a family of faith no matter where we are and where we go. And so that uh, we truly love one another as you had intended and glorify you as God and Father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.